Dear Father in heaven, we just thank you that we can be here. We pray for your Holy Spirit to teach us that we will be able to take these things and use them to really do something that will be to your glory. We thank you for the soil that you've made to uh, sustain our life. And we want to be um, intelligent cooperators with you and really making it productive. We want to be good stewards to make those uh, wise investments that will pay the rich dividends that you have promised to us. And we thank you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, steps to productive soil. Here's a couple quotes. Um, False witness has been born in condemning land which if properly worked, would yield rich returns. That's what we want, don't we? When you're harvesting your garden, it just hits you. We're rich. You know, it's just an overwhelming thing. And that's what God plans for you to have, that kind of harvest. See? The narrow plans, the little strength put forth, the little study as to the best methods call loudly for reform. Does your garden, in this sense, ever call loudly to you for reform, okay? And this is the areas in which we need to bone up, right? The strength we invest in it, the work, it's work, isn't it? And the study as to the best methods and to really have a plan, see? And so we're going to try to give you kind of a game plan, uh, not necessarily a recipe, but a plan. And recipes have their place, too, but... The people need to learn that patient labor will do wonders. There's much mourning over unproductive soil when if men would read the Old Testament scriptures, they would see that the Lord knew much better than they in regard to the treatment of the land. And we'll talk about that at the end, our last point especially. The next sentence there. Okay, and this is, uh, that first one was from uh, Fundamentals. Uh, Christian Education, page 323. And this one is from volume 6 of the Testimonies, 178. But it's many places. Ministry of Healing. Such an encouraging. This that one was kind of a rebuking quote, that last one, wasn't it? See? But this one is an encouraging one. We should work the soil cheerfully, hopefully, gratefully. Believing that the earth holds in her bosom rich stores for the faithful worker to garner. Stores richer than gold or silver. And that's what you should feel like when you're harvesting your garden seed. We're getting the riches. Yes, it's really bountiful harvest. And to me, there's just such an excitement there, you know. Hopefully, gratefully, cheerfully. There's an excitement in figuring out how to work the land and see it really uh, produce. With proper, intelligent cultivation, the earth will yield its treasures for the benefit of man. The mountains and hills are changing. The earth is waxing old like a garment, but the blessing of God, which spreads a table for his people in the wilderness, will never cease. Those are great promises, and they work, yes. Okay, here is our steps to productive soil. And it's hard to say which one is the first. Um, yes, building organic matter has to be at the top. 
balanced nutrients, I can't emphasize that enough. Proper tillage, right up there, top three. It has to be manage nitrogen, grow green manures to stimulate the microbes and all the other things. And uh, rest the land, that's right out of the Bible. Prayer, uh, it should be at the top of the list, shouldn't it? Because you should pray before you garden that you'll have wisdom, okay, and strength. And afterward, that God will bless um, what you do. But we're going to start here with uh, building the organic matter. And organic matter, you know, is just such great stuff. Um, once you realize what it is and, and what level it needs to be to get the benefit, then you really, you know, go for it. It's exciting to build the organic matter. Put it on there because it improves the soil structure. If it's a sandy soil, it'll, it'll make it more, you know, loamy. And uh, if it's a clay soil, it will loosen it up. Okay, so it helps both kinds of soil. Of course, it feeds the microbes, and as it's the food for the microbes is the organic matter. And Neil Kinsey, the man that uh, does our soil testing, he's like a doctor of soil, okay? He says that if your organic matter is less than um, 2.5%, your microbes are on a starvation diet. That's it's the bare minimum. Uh, but as uh, microbes break down the organic matter, they release uh, plant nutrients. And, um, and, of course, they break that organic matter down into a stable humus, which has the ability to hold the nutrients um, protected from leaching, but yet available to the plants. You know, we just kind of think that the nutrient solution is kind of like a nutrient soup there in the soil, and there is a nutrient solution there. It's actually soluble nutrients. But the major way the nutrients are held is on the clay and the organic matter. It's held by um, uh, positive and negative charges, the negative charges on the humus and soil particles and the positive charges on the ions of calcium and magnesium and so forth. And that holds it. It's available to the plant when it needs it, but protected more or less from, from leaching. So that's a really great thing. I mean, humus is just great stuff. It, you know, it can sit there for a thousand years, and when your plant needs it, it it's available. It's like the Bible. See, it sits there on the shelf. But it's, um, or it's like love, you know, everything works better with love, okay. And so if your soil doesn't have humus, all the nutrients and all that, it just won't work as well. In fact, you find many of the nutrients, like uh, zinc is a good example. They can be in the soil, but they're locked up because there's an organic matter there too. They're locked up with other um, elements and so forth. And uh, also, um, the organic matter improves the nutrient and water holding uh, capacity of the soil. Of course, the sandy soil is way too, you know, the water just runs through it. Well, organic matter will help it hold better. Um, it's like a sponge. It just holds the water. Um, and it helps bind the soil, of sandy soil. And then um, a, a clay soil, it'll help loosen it, better drainage. There's so many things the microbes will do. You know, they produce these polysaccharides as they break down the organic matter. They produce these polysaccharides that, that help the soil form aggregates so they're, uh, it's more pore space and all this. And chelating agents, uh, you know, you can buy chelated this and chelated that. But if you have plenty of organic matter, 
it's chelating those nutrients so they can get into the plant. And again, like I said, they're not locked up, but they're just chelates are large organic molecules that hook on to that zinc or that uh, copper, and then they go up to the door of the plant, which would otherwise be closed maybe. They ring the doorbell, the, the plant opens for the chelate, and it just takes the, the nutrient right on in with it. So once you get into this organic matter thing, you're just looking for every way you can build your organic matter. Of course, uh, you don't throw away your crop residues. You till those in or compost them. Same thing with weeds. Um, you're doing all the green manures. The nice thing about green manures is that you're growing the organic matter right in place. You don't have to haul it from, from somewhere. And also, you know, using certain things, you can, forms of organic matter, you can imbalance the soil really easily, but grown in place doesn't tend to have that uh, problem. Compost, of course, you know, we really like that because it not only builds the long-term organic matter of the soil, but it is pre-digested so it has available available nutrients. So that's why compost is, is so great. Manure, I'm really trying to uh, move away from, uh, you know, animal products and byproducts, but it's a very good source of nutrients and organic matter. Our family moved when I was growing up. We moved, we were part of the Advent movement before we ever became Adventists, okay? My dad just kind of followed the cloud. Every two to four years, it seemed like we moved. So we were always having to build up these gardens, see? And my folks had grown up on farms in Pennsylvania, and so they knew how to get it from, you know, just Georgia clay, hard stuff, to growing a good garden in, um, you know, one season. It had to be because we had to fill the freezer, see? And all those jars. So uh, pour on the organic matter and usually it was in the form of uh, some kind of manure and uh, but that gave us a feel you know even though I've um, made some steps maybe beyond that uh, it gave gave me a feel for just what it, what does it take to get it from point A to point B okay and then there's other things like hay um, makes good compost of course has weed seeds in it so you have to be careful about that many times my garden certain parts of my garden already have so many weed seeds in them that uh, that you know a few more I'm not so awfully uh, worried about that and uh, but you can use it for sheet composting okay and that's where maybe uh, when you're cleaning up your garden in the fall and you're getting ready to plant a green manure there's some part of your garden that you just spread on uh, all the organic matter you've been collecting this organic resources say and um, and you just spread it on this part here because you, you're not getting around to composting it it's so much work and so you just sheet comb you just put it on there as thick as you can and still get your rototiller to till it in or you just spade it in or or disc it in or different things like that and you don't expect it to be nice and you know nice seed beds you just get it worked in somehow plant your rye cover crop. I mean, rye can sprout in any kind of trashy conditions. And by the, and you don't have to be worried if you've gotten enough nitrogen on there or not. By the next spring, it's pretty well broken down, but it doesn't have to be completely broken down. Maybe you do that where you're planning the next year to plant your squash and melons. So you won't have to make a fine seabed. You're going to make these hills anyway. You see what I'm saying? 
and just prepare nice places like this. And so they'll all have time to break down. And Oh, boy, you really got the organic matter in that part, see? And so you just feel so good. And here's some other things. Um, straw, of course, makes good mulch because it's very low in nitrogen, high in carbon. And so you either use it for a mulch or put it into the compost pile with other high nitrogen materials. Same thing with leaves. Um, leaf mold tends to be very low in pH. That's the you know stuff that's broken down leaves right under the leaves in the woods. Kitchen scraps, of course, they're a good source of nitrogen for your uh, compost pile. And you don't have to have manure. You know, many people think of manure as composted manure, see? But you can make wonderful compost without manure. It just so happens that manure has a good balance of carbon and nitrogen. But if you study this a little bit, you can learn to have that same balance with vegetable sources. And in my handbook, I have a section there on vegetarian compost. It's all about balancing that carbon and nitrogen. And then you find all these different things that are just being wasted. I mean, all over the world, especially here in the developed world, just so much organic matter being wasted. So while you're driving down the road, you just tune out the billboards, tune in the organic matter, okay? And people are wasting it so much. You be careful, you know, that it's not contaminated with some industrial something or, you know, don't sweep it up off the streets. You might be getting, um, uh, let's see, cobalt or something like, something like that. But... Um, but so much being wasted. You bring that, put it in your organic resource center, put it in your compost pile, build the organic matter. Rice hull, uh, peanut hulls, we got that from Tom's Peanuts in, in Alabama. We just got, they just brought it and truckloads of it. They were just glad to, to get, get rid of it. And um, cane waste down in Belize in Dominican Republic, uh, soybean pulp from your... Um, uh, your uh, tofu, et cetera, et cetera. And we could talk about sources of organic matter. You just here's a little bit about the carbon and nitrogen, things that are brown and woody and straw-like. They're very high in carbon, okay? The first number there is the carbon, 80 to one part of nitrogen. So you want to be careful with those, mix them with high nitrogen materials, either in your compost pile or when you sheet compost. Here's the green tender things are the ones that are high in nitrogen, clover, grass clippings, and so forth. So maybe when you're you know, spreading out that sheet compost, you can put a bunch of grass clippings on there with your more low nitrogen, um, low nitrogen things. But you think of this as a salad in the microbes diet, and the the high carbon materials as the uh, well, meat and potatoes or oat burgers and potatoes in the, in the microbes diet. You need both or you need a balance. Okay, and here's some common mistakes in when you get into this organic matter thing um, that it's easy to, which I've already alluded to, and that is you can add large amounts of low nitrogen organic matter to the soil without balancing it with high nitrogen materials. So just as long as you keep that in mind, um, you will avoid that. And again, that's why compost is so nice because it's already pre-digested and has lots of available nutrients and nitrogen. Um, but just to show you an extreme example, one time I f found a big pile of um, rye. I wouldn't really recommend this, but just to illustrate what you can do to push the limits. 
Um, I found a big pile of rotted um, um, sawdust, very low in nitrogen, 400 to 1, so, um, carbon-nitrogen ratio. Well, I had this area that really needed to be built up, so I put that sawdust on there about two inches thick over the whole area. Then I got some chicken manure, put it on about a half an inch of chicken manure on there, tilled the whole thing up in the fall, planted my green manure, and over the winter I could see that green manure look pretty nice and green. Okay, so that told me, hey, I got the nitrogen just about right. And then in the spring I think I put on some more, some kind of nitrogen source and planted melons, which they take quite a bit of nitrogen. And I had a beautiful crop, see, just because I was keeping in mind, I don't want to make that mistake, see. And so I made sure I put in plenty of nitrogen with the, the uh, high carbon material. And then, of course, you know, it's easy to try to till in a whole bunch of uh, rough organic matter just before you plant, and that really trips you up in trying to prepare a seed bed. So those are things. Just avoid those and just put on the organic matter. But remember, it does take time to build your organic matter. You know, it's not, it's not going to happen all at once. Don't get discouraged. The biggest thing is that you keep adding it and keep cycling it, okay? That's what's the energy for the soil. And everything works better when the microbes have something to, um, to feed on. Okay, I might tell you uh, one or two other stories here. Uh, at Yuchi Pines, people would get in, they'd read all these organic books, and they'd make their garden, and they'd put on everything from sawdust, wood shavings, maybe horse manure, which was over 50% shavings, you see, and uh, leaf mold, and and so forth, and they they get their tomatoes from my greenhouse, and they plant them, they come back in a couple weeks, say, oh, Steve, come diagnose my tomatoes, they've got black spots on the leaves. And uh, they're just dying. After a while, I just could tell them, okay, well, what you did was you did all this, and you ended up with a low nitrogen situation, see? And sure enough, that's what they've done. They put all these low nitrogen organic materials, tilled it all in. Their bed felt like the Garden of Eden soil, you know, all that organic matter in there. So I just told them, well, go get some nitrogen. I don't know if you can save those tomatoes at this point, but just go get some nitrogen, you know, some protein meal. That's really concentrated nitrogen, like alfalfa pellets or soybean meal or something. And sprinkle that, work it in around your plants, and that, that'll probably, or some chemical fertilizer, which I wouldn't really recommend. That'll give you some rescue chemistry, okay? Another friend out in, I think it was St. Louis, we were visiting them, and they'd done a square foot gardening, okay? And in the process of getting all the materials for the square foot gardening, they probably bought their compost as composted cow manure from Lowe's, very low in nitrogen, and all the other things. They ended up with a low nitrogen situation. They were telling me, oh, Steve, just come and diagnose my garden, say. And so I said, well, I, th I think all in all they told me what they'd done. Well, you just need to get some nitrogen to put in there. But um, all in all, when I walk over people's garden and they want me to diagnose their garden, the first thing I can tell them that they need, I tell them, you need massive amounts of organic matter. See? And that makes everything else uh, work better. And then these few cautions in there are good to, good to have. You might say, well, you know, what is it? Okay, I want to know what is putting on a good amount of organic matter 
look like, okay, especially with compost. Well, this will give you this kind of a recipe. People like recipes, okay? So this would be, um, this came out of Elliot Coleman's book, uh, New Organic Grower, which is more for market growers. But, um, uh, and I would really recommend his books. And of course, this one is uh, more for home gardeners. This all not only tells you how to grow a garden outside, but also in an uh, unheated uh, greenhouse and eat out of the garden all winter. And I can tell you I've done this, and it works just exactly the way he says it. And I've done it on a garden scale for the last uh, 10, 12 years. Um, just a little, um, little thing I have against the south side of my house. And you can just eat out of your garden um, all winter long, except for maybe a couple weeks when it just, you know, is so frozen up you can't get in there. So. But, um, and, oh, okay, this is called a Four Season Harvest. Four Season Harvest by Elliot Coleman. Very good, very good book, which I would recommend. Okay, um, but, uh, you know, 40 tons to the acre. Uh, translates down to one ton per thousand square feet, which is more of a garden level, and that's about a pickup load of compost. Or per hundred square feet, that's 200 pounds. That's about uh, two wheelbarrows, okay? That's easier to wrap your mind around, isn't it? See, that'd be an initial, if you have low fertility, you just feel your soil is just on the low end. And then here you can see, you can put on half that much if you think it's medium fertility. And uh, for good fertility, you can only use 10 tons uh, to the acre or 50 pounds per 100 square feet, 500 pounds per 1,000 square feet. And then you could continue that as a maintenance thing um, uh, is what he recommends in his book. Uh, if you read the rest of the page there, is a maintenance thing of, um, of 10 to 20 tons of the acre. Okay, that's kind of a shotgun uh, recipe approach, and of course, then uh, this is a good example of what many organic farmers would do. Uh, then they would add uh, colloidal phosphate and green sand, and and so forth. But I'm I'm doing this to just kind of give you an idea of yeah, this is what you could do. That you probably grow a pretty good garden, but I wouldn't recommend that you do that because it's kind of a recipe. Uh, which may fit your soil and it may not, or it may work really great the first year because that's just what your soil needs. But if you keep putting it on kind of uh, blindly without the next step here, which is an in-depth soil test, you will end up with what was your good treatment ends up building up excesses in your soil, which can cause you uh, problems with quality, with production, and um, insect and disease problems, and so forth. Okay, so here's our, here's our next step, and that is to, um, we don't want to just put on some recipe. We want to balance the nutrients in our soil based on an in-depth soil test, based on a cation exchange capacity uh, soil test, okay? And it sounds real complicated. The next things I'm going to explain to you, if you don't understand any of it, it's no problem because you just find a person that will do this test for you. They'll tell you just what to put on. You put it on blindly, and you'll be miles ahead of 
many very educated people, okay? But the more that you understand of, of what it's all about, then you'll be able to do it more intelligently. So I'm just going to wade you through this a little bit, okay? The cation exchange capacity is the capacity of your clay and humus to hold the nutrients, okay? And um, those nutrients are the, the uh, base elements like calcium, magnesium, potassium, the ones that will raise your pH, okay? And uh, so it's sort of like the cation exchange capacity is sort of like the size of the bucket that your soil has to hold nutrients. So first of all, you need to know what the size of the bucket is. So there's a number attached. If you have a sandy soil, it's a low number because it can't hold as much nutrients, doesn't have much clay. And if it's a more clay soil, it has a bigger capacity. And then over here on the right, this uh, pie chart shows you um, the percentages of nutrients uh, that you want filling up that capacity. Okay, you want that capacity filled up with 60 to 70 percent calcium, 10 to 20 percent magnesium, and you notice these are kind of ranges, okay, uh, 10 to 15 percent hydrogen, and 3 to 5 percent um, potassium, that's uh, represented by the K there. In German, it's called calium, I think and then uh, some micronutrients in there, okay? And if you get this balance, everything else will work better in your soil, okay? You're, you're, uh, you'll take less nitrogen to grow a good crop. Your uh, texture of your soil will be much better. When I went to Uchipah in sandy soil, I just thought it was going to be so wonderful. Boy, after an Alabama thunderstorm, that soil would crust. It was just like a cement in that soil, okay? And we tested it, we found the magnesium was very high and that it was making it more um, of a problem soil. And we put on calcium. Once we got the calcium up, that um, cement-like uh, structure, uh, uh, crusting, uh, went away. It was really, really great. So uh, you want to get this balance, okay? You don't want to just put on a recipe, even though that may be a good start, okay? Uh, don't think that you can't grow a garden without a soil test, but just think that a, a soil test, not just any soil test from, you know, locally or some university thing or something, uh, those are just kind of, uh, they're okay, but they're sort of, you know, way back there in the dark ages. You want this uh, cation exchange capacity from somebody that has really done it because some of these labs, they say they do cation exchange capacity, but they really don't understand this philosophy. Neil Kinsey, the man that I worked with, he worked with a man by the name of uh, William Albrecht. He's the one that really developed this whole thing of the cation exchange capacity, and he, or he discovered it or did a lot of experimenting with it, and he did a lot of soil and animal studies that found that there is this balance where you get the best production and most important, the best food quality and the best resistance to disease and in insects, okay? And this wasn't just something he spun up, he really did his homework. And Neil Kinsey was one of his uh, last uh, students and trainees, so he spent his whole professional career, um, he's retirement age now but still working, <laughs> Uh, doing this, and he's really built on what uh, William Albrecht uh, did. And I can say from my experience, it really, it really does work.
So you want that uh, proper balance, okay? And um, here just shows you uh, on the left, you could say this is a clay soil, which has a big capacity, okay? And if you want to fill that capacity up to 60% with calcium, or you say that it is 60% full of calcium um, on a 40 ME soil, that means you have 24 ME, um, it takes a lot more calcium on that soil than it does, say, on a sandy soil. So again, uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, type of thing. Okay, and here's just a few things about uh, sampling. You want to use a clean container. I usually just put a um, garbage bag into a five-gallon pail or any kind of pail, but I line it with a, you know, a clean bag so I'm sure I'm not uh, contaminating it. I try not to touch it because... Uh, you know, sweat on your hands, that's sodium, that'll change the pH. Uh, peanut butter, that's nitrogen, protein, nitrogen. So you just try to be uh, <clears throat> real careful. And then you want to sample to the depth uh, recommended by the lab, which is usually up six and a half to seven inches. And if you're going to be tilling, uh, uh, you're really planning to till in deeper than that, you might want to talk to the lab and about uh, um, doing it deeper. Then uh, you want to take 10 to 20 probes on a small garden. You can just take 5 to 10. You kind of do it on a, a random uh, pattern. And um, you mix that thoroughly. You know, all those 10 to 20 individual probes, you put those in your bucket, mix that all together. So you have kind of a representative composite um, sample to send to the lab. You send them one cup in a Ziploc plastic bag. Of course, mark it very carefully. You want to avoid areas with uh, different kinds of soil. You know, if you look over your garden and it's kind of all one color, except over on that corner it's real red clay, and over here it's real rich uh, soil, you just stay away from those areas, okay? Or places where you had a compost pile or a lime pile or where you uh, maybe had your you know, squash and melon hills, you don't sample on those. So you want the most general, what is the most representative, okay? Otherwise, it doesn't really tell you anything. And um, then you just package that up and send it off. I, I'll have to inform you that it does cost some money, but I would tell you it's well worth about $50, which is, uh, it's a tank of gas for my, uh, my vehicle, and that will... <laughs> If you then put on those amendments, it will put some, uh, it's like gas in your, in your soil's tank. So. And here's uh, uh, just kind of how to read this test when you get it. Okay, I could show you the, a sample uh, sheet, what it looks like when it comes back. But, um, and you should have this on your handout here. Unfortunately, they stapled together the... Um, handout that I'm going to use for my talk on weed management tomorrow in here and also the one on, on pest control. So that means if you're going to take this, you have to come back tomorrow for that. Okay, otherwise tear it off and leave it. I, I imagine we can copy some more back there. But just so you're aware of that. Um, but you see one here that says reading Kinsey's soil thing and at the top it has something that's not on this slide. And that's a disclaimer that you can't take these numbers on the, what's that? 
Okay, it's all the way on the back of your sheets here that are stapled together, I think. And it says that you can't take these numbers and apply them to some other test because each lab does their testing in a different way. They may do a good job but and, and have it just the same quality, but these numbers won't necessarily transfer. But the concepts, the concepts will, okay? And we've already talked about the exchange capacity. The pH, if you get your exchange capacity balanced, the pH will end up where it's supposed to be. It's like seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will come as a matter of course. And then the humus content, um, <clears throat> if you're working with a sandy soil, it's actually hard to get it up uh, above maybe 3.5 or 4% in sandy, hot Alabama. It just burns up the organic, it stimulates the microbes and they just burn it up as fast as you can put it on once you get up to that level, okay? But that's no problem, you're just cycling the organic matter and, and that's great. But in a um, heavier soil, more clay soil up in the north, Wisconsin or whatever, you can get your organic matter up, what you call a good organic matter there, would be five to six percent, okay? And so it's just something to be aware of when you're reading your test that you're not discouraged if you're in the south or, or whatever. Okay, and then this is, a, you know, this whole thing about balancing the nutrients. This is the heart of your cation exchange capacity test. And uh, they usually, you know, around numbers, you say you're shooting for 68% calcium, okay? But... Um, 67 to 69% for a clay soil of calcium, 10 to 12% magnesium for a clay soil. And that will really loosen up your clay soil, make it less sticky and all that, more aerated. But for a sandy soil, you really want it more, bi you know, more binding. So then it's more like 60% calcium and 15 to 20% magnesium. And both of those, in whatever soil you're working with, both calcium and magnesium should add up to 80%. Then for potassium, 3 to 5% for most uh, vegetable crops, garden crops. And if you get your potassium right, it will give you a lot more um, disease resistance and so forth. Sodium is usually not a problem except in desert uh, areas. Um, and like we said, the exchangeable hydrogen, which has to do with the pH, um, just tells you um, how full your bucket is of all these base elements. And if your soil's real acid, is an oversimplification, but if your soil's very acid, it just means you don't have enough of those base elements, okay? But once you understand this, you understand that uh, you could have a high pH just putting on a whole bunch of magnesium. And that's what happens. People go down to their, somebody, your neighbor told them, oh, yeah, lime really made my garden grow good. Or, or the university test tells you you need to put on lime to get the pH to 6.8 or something like that. So they go down to the garden center, and they give them uh, dolomite lime, which is, uh, has magnesium as well as calcium. They put that on year after year and they get their magnesium way too high. So just putting on lime, if you don't know what kind of lime it is, and you haven't had a cation exchange capacity test, can um, eventually, or 
maybe your soil is already high in magnesium, you're just adding more and getting it more in balance, making more problems for yourself. Okay, and then here's uh, nitrogen. Again, they don't actually test for nitrogen in this. It's just estimated what's going to be as the organic matter breaks down, it releases a certain amount of nitrogen. Again, the more organic matter you have, the more nitrogen is just as like a nitrogen factory right there in your soil automatic. Then the sulfates, we usually don't talk about sulfates. They're very important uh, for, again, the health and disease resistance of the plants. Um, and the phosphates, uh, we usually put on rock phosphate for that, very uh, natural uh, product. Then the trace elements, again, that's something that's not usually dealt with in the average soil test and um, is very important. This just kind of gives you uh, what you want there. For This is in parts per million, okay? So very small amounts of trace elements that you need. And um, so one part per million is uh, good, but uh, two parts per million is excess, okay? So you put it on very carefully. But, you know, we're growing a garden because we want quality food, right? And uh, in my experience, testing soils all over the world, it's very consistent that soils will be very low in at least one or two of the trace elements. And what do these trace elements do? When you go to the health food store and you look for boron, it's usually listed like osteotrace, okay? So that's for uh, joint problems, okay? Well, just put it on your soil and then you, it's a lot more enjoyable to eat it that way. And um, iron, uh, that usually brings a lot of the other um, elements with it, it seems like, into the plants. Ma manganese, very important in there being um, a high level of vitamin C in your vegetables. If it's little, too little or too much manganese, the vitamin C can go way down. Copper, um, that has to do with uh, helping you to avoid uh, aneurysms and strokes, okay? Strengthens the smooth muscle type of thing. And uh, zinc really um, has to do with the immune system, which you know. So one of, um, you want to uh, try to spread these trace elements very carefully. You mix them with sand because you're putting on very small amounts, okay? And so you mix it with sand and you spread half of it one direction and half of it the other. So you get it very uh, evenly spread on there. And Kinsey actually recommends that you put some of these on just uh, every six months a little bit so you don't get too much all at once. Okay, here's some of the sources that I use. And if you have these, you tell the lab ahead of time that you have them. And so they'll know to recommend um, uh, what you have available. Um, use compost. Of course, I'm growing green manures, which if they're leguminous green manures, they're putting uh, nitrogen into my soil. Um, then protein meal. Protein in the protein molecule is nitrogen. So those are things like alfalfa pellets, soybean meal, uh, those kind of things. Uh, my brother found out in the um, corner of Colorado uh, these uh, pinto bean splits. They're just dumping them out the backside of the processing plants there, all the split pinto beans. And boy, that's nitrogen, man. He's just hauling um, 
trailer loads of it for free. Again, wasted uh, resources. Then here's the sources of uh, phosphorus, uh, colloidal phosphate, um, which has 2 to 3% available and like 20% total. So it's a slow release uh, form of phosphorus. If you put 500 pounds of this on, it will raise your phosphate level in your soil, 100, 100 pounds on the soil test, very predictable. Things, of course, it's also in compost and manure, and sometimes that can cause you a problem. If you're putting on large amounts year after year, it can raise your phosphate levels so high, we'll start tying up other nutrients. And in Colorado, we've been doing this good organic program, uh, recipe type thing, see, in our greenhouse, putting on compost and rock phosphate, growing tomatoes, and then our tomatoes, when we put those transplants in, they were just only this high or whatever, they were just wilting, all wimpy, even though they had plenty of water, drip irrigation and everything. So we called Neil Kinsey, what's going on, you know? He said, well, it's probably phosphorus is tying up the copper, and that's making that wimpy thing, see? And sure enough, we tested the soil, phosphates were way up there, and so we, but we ended up, we had low marginal copper, so we just put on more copper up to excellent level, and uh, but anyway, we quit putting on the uh, rock phosphate and the compost, we found other ways to do the organic matter and the, uh, and the nitrogen that we needed. Okay, here's uh, potassium, of course in compost, granite dust and green sand are slow release uh, sources, and potassium sulfate is many times what is uh, recommended in the soil test to put on because you know exactly how much is in it. And it's, uh, it's, uh, if you're doing an organic program, it, it fits within that because it's a mine, mine product. And then calcium here you see is the high calcium lime, the dolomite lime. If you need high calcium lime and that's what's recommended in your soil test, don't let anybody sell you dolomite lime, okay? You look all around the country, call the dye singers or whatever, get on the web, make those five phone calls that it takes to find what you can't find. And uh, some of these sources like Seven Springs, that catalog that they're, they're giving out here, and uh, um, Lancaster Ag in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, they have these kind of things if you can't get them, get them anywhere else. But dolomite lime is very easy to get. You know, that's what's available at most garden centers. And you want it to be very fine grind. You want it to be like, uh, feel like, sort of like whole wheat flour. Kind of cakes a little bit, you know, and so forth. And you don't want the, something that feels like sand, okay? And gypsum also has sulfur in it. Sometimes when your pH is already too high, but you need uh, the calcium, that's good. Then, of course, sources of magnesium. Dolomite lime has the magnesium as well as the calcium. Magnesium sulfate if you need only magnesium. And then here are the trace elements. Um, most of them are sulfates, the borax. Of course, there's other sources besides this. Um, seaweed is a good source, but it's kind of a shotgun source. Okay, if you put on enough seaweed to correct a real deficiency, you might be getting an excess in some other area. But... Um, Boron, if you can't find it anywhere else, you just go down to Walmart, 20 mule team borax, and, uh, and put that on, okay? Copper sulfate, they use that in um, putting in fish ponds, so that's 
quite easy to get. The other things you might have to look a little bit uh, more for. Okay, um, then once you get your you know soil recommendation, you spread that very evenly on your garden and you till it in. Okay, so the next thing here is uh, proper tillage. Of course, the only, uh, when you're putting things from your soil test is not the only time you do tillage, right? But uh, and you want to be careful when you're doing incorporating from the soil test, you want to make sure that really gets mixed into that top uh, six to seven inches of your soil really evenly. So you wouldn't want to spread it on, you know, just um, undisturbed soil and then go in there with your broad fork and break up chunks and it all drops down to the bottom of those chunks or you're spading it in and it ends up you know, on the bottom of that where you flipped it over. So you want to till it in, however you do it when it's all said that, you want to till it in very evenly. But the main point I want to make here with tillage, which Paul already made really well, is you don't want to just till with your rototiller three or four inches deep, okay? That is really confining your roots and making problems for drainage and so forth and aeration. So you want to get in there on a garden level, the broad fork is a really great thing. If you don't have a broad fork, of course, you can use a spading fork or a spade and go down. But the, my spading, my uh, broad fork, which I'll show you here in the next uh, picture. Oh, it's not a very, doesn't show up real well. Uh, anyway, it has, um, its uh, tines are 10 and a half inches long. I think that's the way they are in Johnny's uh, tines too. So they really go down there. And if you've already tilled it some with your rototiller, you can even push it down in uh, a little bit more, okay? So you really want to loosen it deep, but more incorporate your organic matter and your fertility into the part that, you know, you're going to really be that top, air, most aerated, aerated part, okay? And over time, of course, that will slowly um, build the soil deeper and deeper. And it's fine to do you know, more deep fertility things if you, if you can, but you'll find that that will give you the most um, if you just incorporate it in into the top uh, six to eight inches. Okay. Um, here we were preparing our greenhouse and uh, we were putting on these amendments. We went to Bob Gregory's seminar and he teaches you how to figure this all and f do all the crunch all the numbers to be your own consultant, okay? But uh, fortunately, I had a wife who just loves to crunch numbers, okay? Otherwise, it would have never happened. But I put on the amendments, and uh, I wanted to make sure that we got it uh, the right depth so our rototiller would go deep enough. We just have a little pony Troy bill. So after we tilled the amendments in some, we went right down the bed with a broad fork and just broke it. So we made sure it was really deeply loosened. And then we went a little bit deeper. And then we got it that um, seven inches deep. So it was uh, because they're calculating that they're going to give you those parts per million, okay, on that much of a slice of soil. So you need to know what they're calculating on. And, and do it that way. If you, if you, uh, you know, incorporate it a whole lot deeper, you're sort of diluting the uh, recommendation type of thing. Anyway, so um, till deep, and of course, then when it's all said and done, 
prepare a good seed bed too. And this is what our greenhouse looked like uh, just a few days ago. So it worked, okay? Okay, so build your organic matter, uh, balance, the, put on the amendments to balance the soil based on an in-depth soil test, a cation exchange capacity soil test from somebody who really knows what they're doing. And of course, educate yourself as much as possible. If you want, oh, if you've been kind of confused by what I've said, or you really like to, you'd like to study into this, there's a book called Soul of the Soil. Okay, it's a very down-to-earth book, nothing, you know, spacey about it. It's just saying that the soil is a living organism, all those microbes. Okay, that's what they're trying to get across by that. The Soul of the Soil by Smiley and Gershom or something like that. You can Google it. We did it last night, and you can buy it there on the web. Uh, maybe even buy it and download it. I'm not sure. And it's very down-to-earth, layman's terms, but very credible information that will help you to wrap your mind around this and also the organic matter, building your organic matter. And they have charts in there of carbon-nitrogen ratio and some like we have here, the different sources and, and that kind of thing. Okay. Now, once you put on your those uh, amendments according to the soil test, you've taken care of... Uh, your calcium, magnesium, phosphorus for the next three years. It's just going to basically take care of itself with a few, you know, minor things which you'll learn along the way. But that's just, for me, I relax. It's done, okay? But nitrogen is a more dynamic nutrient, okay? And what they recommend to you do on the soil test is basically what you need to do as a yearly application or every crop cycle. You need to think about how much nitrogen that crop needs. Otherwise, you'll be disappointed with this wonderful and expensive soil test, okay? And all the work it took you to round up these materials. And this is a good time to do it. You test your soil now, and that'll give you plenty of time to, you know, sit around a fire during December and January and find these nutrients, get them all measured out, what you need, and put it on there, okay? And let them know you're doing it as a garden thing. Otherwise, they'll recommend it in pounds of the acre. Then you have to go through all this. But if you tell them you're doing it as a garden, they'll tell you how much to put on per thousand square feet. And that'll make it, you know, a lot, lot easier for you. And the nice thing about Neil Kinsey and others that are here that kind of do consulting, like Whitmer and so forth, on his program is that once you paid for that soil test, you have a consultant on the other end of the phone, if you can get past the secretary or whatever. You have a consultant there on the other end of the phone that just loves the soil, okay? Neil Kinsey, he's a very Christian man. He's actually a Sabbath keeper. And um, so uh, he studied Adventist books on the Sabbath and really, really appreciated that. So we're real, we're real friends and, and buddies, and he's done, we've done seminars together and, and so forth. Okay, so you want to, uh, the next step in productive soil is to intelligently manage nitrogen. We've already talked about that. See the pitfalls you might have? But here I want to emphasize, in addition to that, that every crop cycle you uh, evaluate <clears throat> what uh, kind of nitrogen that crop needs. And if you put on your soil test these different types of crops that I'm going to tell you about here, maybe 
corn as a heavy feeder or melons or something, and you put on a light feeder, that's mostly root crops, potatoes and carrots, and you put on soil builders, of course, that's beans and peas, so you list all those, then they will uh, be more likely to recommend what you need for each one of those types, say, if you're growing this crop, do this, if you're growing this crop, do this, see, so you're getting three or five soil tests, uh, recommendations in one, okay? But my um, garden sort of works like this. I have sort of a three-year rotation. Not always, but this is sort of the outline. First year, in any given garden bed, I would grow a heavy feeder, which would be like corn or the cabbage family, anything with big leafy vegetable, okay? Squash and melons and even the nightshades, even though you want to be careful not to put too much nitrogen on tomatoes, otherwise you get a big bush and, and not very much fruit, see? But they take, a, you give those your best shots, okay? Then the next year, light feeders is the root crops. They don't take so much nitrogen. In fact, you give your carrots too much nitrogen, you get a big tops and kind of, you know, woody roots. So. You just kind of coast. If you've done this organic matter building, your soil has enough momentum, and what you put on the year before, you don't need to put on any more nitrogen. Okay, it just coasts. And then by the next year, you need nitrogen. It's lower, but you're going to grow soil builders, which are your legumes, beans and peas. Okay, and so that way you use your nitrogen much more efficiently, and you're not just, you know, you're intelligently working with what your crop needs and kind of uh, cycling it along to get the most mileage out of your, because nitrogen, however you get it, is sort of an expensive commodity. You have to work. It uh, costs money or labor or whatever. And so that can really help you. And of course, I don't always do this. Sometimes I do heavy feeder, heavy feeder. Of course, I try not to do the same plant family, okay? So I might do a heavy feeder of corn, and then the next year, a heavy feeder of tomatoes. And there I put, you know, compost right under the tomato plant and really, you know, or I might do, but I usually don't do heavy feeders more than two years in a row, okay? And then I do light feeders and then soil builders. Um, and uh, just depends on, you know, what I like. I like a lot of corn, so it kind of, you know, a lot of heavy feeders and I build it so that I, I get the other things in there, and I always make sure I have the right balance of nitrogen, not too much, and make it go as far as possible. Okay, uh, and here's uh, what you can do if you don't have all that compost or so forth. You can use these uh, protein meal, okay? And um, sometimes uh, that's all you have in some mission projects. That's all we've had. Okay, it's not ideal, but uh, it's something you can just sprinkle down the row. You know, us Americans, we just like that. You get it out of a bag and just put it down. It's a lazy man's way. Okay, so don't let this get to be a habit. See, but uh, or or a crutch maybe is a word, but um, it's really nice, nice to have. Okay. And it's uh, alfalfa pellets are 2.5% uh, nitrogen. Of course, they have some phosphorus, 0.5, and some potassium. And you can incorporate this under the rows at planting time. It usually won't uh, rot the seed or anything like that. But in a heavy 
soil or in the early spring, it can. So in those cases, it's best to till it in a week or two ahead of time so it kind of has the uh, ability to go or time to break down a little bit and it won't cause you a problem. In the average soil, you put on 400 pounds the acre and that will, you know, supply the nitrogen for a, a crop that needs a good amount of nitrogen. If your soil is really, if your soil is poor, you can put on um, uh, twice that much, 800 pounds the acre. If your soil is really poor or that's the only source of nitrogen that you have, you can even put on twice that much, okay? You have a 100 square foot bed and so you put uh, 10 pounds on that 100 square foot and really, then you really till it in and give it some time. But um, so it's, it's something that you can use there to, you know, you just know, okay, we put that nitrogen on it. And you can get these alfalfa pellets. Of course, now it's becoming GMO. I'm trying to uh, uh, avoid the GMO things. And they've just gotten into GMO alfalfa. I used to do soybean meal. And it's GMO, so I stay away from that. In fact, I've started to make my own soybean meal. We grow these real nice green soybeans. They even stay green when they are dry. But we do them, you know, edamame soybeans. We pick them when they're green but we grow two long rows and we never get them all picked and then we just thresh them out and, and we pressure cook them and they're great, but we never get them all eaten. And so we've been building up these soybeans. So I said, well, I'll make my own soybean meal, okay? And it, it works. And also we grew our own corn and always on the end of some of the ears there'll be these kernels that aren't so good. So we just make um, moldy cornmeal and uh, a blend in an old blender and we just use that as a, you know, it's like a side dress thing where you f can see, oh, we didn't quite get the nitrogen right. Your goal is, you know, you want to feed the soil and let the soil feed the plant. You want, don't want to just be spoon feeding, but sometimes you need a little touch up. So that's a, a nice thing to uh, have there. And you can also, but you can get organic uh, soybean meal. It costs a little bit more and you have to look for it. And you can get um, more easily, you can get organic alfalfa meal from a place like Seven Springs. And it's really not all that much more expensive than, you know, just a local uh, co-op or southern states or whatever. With the soybean meal, uh, you don't want to just till that into your soil and just plant the row. You want it because uh, it can rot the seed. You know, it's a bean. It's rotting. It rots your beans, say. But you drill it in. I use a push planter like they were demonstrating out here and put the biggest pea plate in there. Just put my soybean meal in the planter and just plant that beside my corn row or, or whatever. Okay. And then uh, green manures. We could talk about a lot about that, the nitrogen, the organic matter. But the point I want to make here is that you want to grow a green manure to stimulate your microbes. Okay because um, Richard Harwood from Rodale Research, he showed that the um, more part of the year that you have living roots in your soil of living plants, the higher level of microbes you will have, okay? So that's a winter green manure to keep something there in the winter. And also that they found that the more diversity of plants you have in your soil at all times, the higher the microbes will be. So that's a between-the-row green manures, which I'll be talking about in the weed management part, how to do this living mulch um, 
in the row uh, and the timing and all that. So grow green manures to stimulate the microbes. Uh, don't, don't get all these. Well, there's, there's a benefit to some of these microbial products, but you can do the homegrown thing. What I found is if you give the microbes the right environment, you don't have to put them on there. They're already there, and they'll just, you know, like in the compost pile, if you give the right conditions, boy, that compost pile will just heat up. And, and, and again, there's, there's probably a place for those compost inoculants and this and that. But uh, same thing in the soil. If you get your organic matter and the balance of nutrients, okay, you can have a lot of organic matter, but if you don't have the balance of nutrients, the microbes want a balance also. Okay? And they always eat at the first table. So if you get plenty for the microbes and the plants, they'll serve the nitrogen up to the plants and they'll serve all the nutrients. Okay, and then uh, rest the land. Well, I'll just read this quote. Uh, we could spend a whole hour talking about that. There is much mourning over unproductive soil when if men would read the Old Testament scriptures, they would see that the Lord knew much better than they in regard to the proper treatment of the land. After being cultivated for several years and giving her treasure to the possession of man, portions of the land should be allowed to rest and then the crops should be changed. Okay, so that says to me that you should um, let your land rest every seven years, but you don't have to rest your whole garden all at once, okay? Portions of the land. So I just kind of, uh, not exactly, but I kind of, you know, divide my garden up into seven plots or my rotation, and one of those years or one of those plots resting, see? And I always get it on seventh. Maybe I am resting uh, one-fourth of my garden, but I make sure that every seven years, all of my garden gets rested, and sometimes more than one in seven because you're doing these intensive uh, soil building things. And again, when we're showing that in the row, um, uh, green manure thing is how you can cycle from crop year into a rest year and intensive green manure soil building uh, type of thing. If you grow a green, good green manure in the rest year, man, you come out of that you don't have to put on any additional nitrogen if it's a legume green manure. No, during that year, you just keep it mowed so that weeds don't, you know, whatever. But then uh, when you're going to, you know, grow your next crop on the eighth year, uh, you uh, till it in and the organic matter and the nitrogen is going to really, uh, yeah, have, have, a, have a, a heavy feeder there uh, ready to go. Oh, yes, I'm so sorry because I, I, you know, when I was going over this talk, I told my brain to remember to give a definition of green manure, okay? Green manures are just plants that you grow to build the soil, to till in. So instead of using animal manure, you use a green manure, okay? All these green plants, clover and so forth. And it, you're growing the organic matter right in place. That'd be rye, vetch, so on and so forth. Clovers. Uh, here in, um, uh, here in uh, Tennessee, it, it, it may not be, but yeah, it is. It's getting kind of late, so you just get your plan for next year. Um, one that I really like that I can't grow in West Virginia, which does really well in Alabama, and here um, is crimson clover. 
it's really great because it really jumps up in the spring for, for a legume. It really jumps up in the spring. Uh, but we'll mention some of those in uh, our weed uh, management uh, thing. So resting the land. And I have done soil tests on a, a plot that I had basically treated the whole thing the same, except then one part of it I grew a crop. The other part I just grew a green manure over it's clear through the summertime. And then in the fall, I tested those two different treatments. And the nutrients on this whole cation exchange capacity were much better, much higher in several areas where it had been rested than where we'd grown the crop. So that just tells me that God, of course, he created the soil. And he's just telling us, hey, you know, I want you to really grow a crop when you plant that seed. So this is what the soil needs to recruit, recoup its resources, see, refill the bank account. So when you write a check, which is planting the seed and growing the crop, you're going to really get a harvest, see? Okay, and then here's the last one, is to pray. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So we need God's grace in every area of our life, don't we, to see and admit where we need to reform, right? And that includes our garden. And then we need God's grace and help to reform, okay? And, <clears throat> and his wisdom to do, let's say in the garden, to do what will improve the soil and really make it happen, his strength. And then uh, we need his protection because there's all those things of the environment which is uh, manipulated by the enemy sometimes. And, uh, and we need God's blessing. Uh, volume, uh, what is it? Volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 150 or 151, something like that. It says that God can bless 20 acres and make it produce as much as 100. Okay, so we need God's uh, blessing. He can give a direct blessing to make things work. Uh, so we need that. And um, so we need to pray before for wisdom and help and after for God's, uh, God's blessing. Okay, we've run over a little bit here, but uh, maybe there's a, a couple questions before we wind up. Yes. I uh, know. Once you've put that on, you don't need to test for another three years. In fact, if you test in that time, you need to tell the lab what you put on because those amendments, it takes a while for them to fully release. And so they really skew the soil test unless they know what you put on in the recent past. And same thing if you put something on. In fact, the form has there, you can fill out what you put on in the recent, recent past in most soil tests. Okay, any, anyone else? Okay, very good. Let's, uh, let's wind up with a prayer. Lord, we just thank you that you have uh, created us to work the soil and to enjoy the work and to revel in the harvest and the, just the partnership with you. Help us, Lord, to uh, be true partners with you. And help us to reform where we need to and put forth that effort. We pray that you'll bless our gardens. Bless each person here. 
to be able to achieve what you plan for them to in every area of their life and in this area specifically, I pray. And bless this information. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.